Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call. Go. Stand by for house lights. Good. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody. Welcome to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here with Rihanna Yazzie. Rihanna, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so let's kick off with you telling us a little bit more about yourself. Um, sure. Um, so I am a playwright and a filmmaker, and I started a theater company called New Native Theater in 2009. And so that's 12 years old this year. And yeah, I've been writing plays for very long time <laughs> since I was little and, uh, you know, just um, making a living at it now, um, branching out in film and still running my theater company. <laughs> and you are a busy woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very busy woman with, with all of those hats that you're wearing. So you've self-identified as an all-around theater maker. As you mentioned, you direct, you act, you write, you produce. So how does being an all-around theater maker influence and affect how you write? Well, um, it, it affects how I write because it doesn't allow me time to write. <laughs> um, well, I start off um, my life uh, as a playwright. I've always thought of myself that way. And when I moved to Minnesota, uh, I came here out on a fellowship for playwrights. And one of the things that I um, found is that because... Um, not very many Native Americans are involved in theater for a bunch of systemic, racialized reasons. I ended up becoming a producer because it was really hard to develop plays when you didn't have the infrastructure of other Native people to help tell those stories. So that's how I got really more into sort of being um, called to, uh, to produce and direct full-time. And then, of course, um, when I could, I would write. But while I've been running my theater company, it's it's quite it's quite a full time job to be a producer. Um, but I do find those times to write. So I do oddly more screenwriting than I do playwriting. Um, maybe it's just the compartmentalization of trying to um, run a theater and then have a separate personal uh, artistic practice. <laughs> so she's gonna meow the whole time. <laughs> Um, so you will definitely be hearing my cat in the background because uh, she is uh, front and center in most of my life. She does show up in all of my Zoom calls and all of my Zoom panels. So I'm sorry that she will show up in this podcast as well. Well, I am. Uh, we, we are delighted to welcome her as another guest. Can you introduce her for us? Yeah, Can you tell us her name? Baby Bear. Yeah, her name is Baby Bear. And when she... And she's uh, she's done uh, yelling at me from afar. She might just come up and say hi to everybody. 
<laughs> well, welcome to the podcast, too, Baby Bear. And, you know, if she wants to weigh in, let's have her weigh in. Yeah, we'll have her weigh in. <laughs> so I want to, if you don't mind, go back just a little bit. You graduated from the University of Southern California's Master's of Professional Writing program. That's kind of a great big deal. Tell us a little bit about that portion of your life, what it was like, and uh, who you worked with. Yeah, I... I'd probably start with uh, my time at the University of New Mexico, uh, which uh, is located in Albuquerque. That's where I got my undergraduate degree, and that's probably the place that actually set me off on a theater trajectory. I always say this, um, but I, I ended up getting like just out of high school, um, I sent a bunch of my writing to the dramatic writing program at the University of New Mexico. And the person who was the uh, head of the playwriting program was a fellow named Digby Wolf, who was this English comedian who was kind of like the Australian Ed Sullivan. So how he would uh, uh, okay. describe himself. He, he was a comedy writer. He opened for the Beatles at one point. He wrote for the Monkees. He wrote for the Sonny and Cher show and the Smothers Brothers show. And he was one of the co-creators of Laugh-In. So somehow, some way, he ended up uh, in Albuquerque. Um, I don't know. A lot of people end up in Albuquerque. Um, and and uh, he ended up giving me a, a, a very lucrative scholarship. It was $400 a semester. So uh, as long as I stayed a, a, a theater major, I would get this $400 a semester. So I really got into theater for the money, just like everyone. Um, yeah. But... Um, but he was super encouraging. Um, I'd say he was definitely a, a very important, formative uh, voice in my life. Um, he introduced me to the art and the craft of playwriting, and I really fell in love with it. Like I really, I really love and care about um, dramatic writing structure. I love uh, building characters. I, I love the long process it takes to put a play together, and so often that. You know, for me, at least, that process takes a lot of silence and care and thinking and building, which is why uh, when you're a producer, it's constantly like, go, 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 go. So it's it's tough to find those quiet moments to just build your world as a, as a playwright. But uh, yeah, Digby, Digby Wolf, he, he encouraged me and um, that encouragement went a long way. And before he came to University of New Mexico, he used to... Um, he used to teach at the University of Southern California, USC, Trojans. <laughs> and, um, and so he told me, like, hey, you might want to try try doing that dramatic writing program out there. And so I did. I'd never left home before. And I moved to Los Angeles, like uh, northern, south, south central. And it was awesome. I loved it. I loved being in Los Angeles and... It was a really fantastic and positive experience for me. I I just loved everything about Los Angeles, and but yeah, the dramatic writing program it was it was really interesting. Um, it was different because all of the professors I think they were adjunct professors every single one of them because they all were professionals in the entertainment industry or theater industry, and they taught one class a week and. So I, one of my favorite classes was actually a short story writing class by um, Aram Saroyan. 
who's William Soroyan's son. And um, I, I absolutely loved writing short stories. And it was an interesting program because you could take screenwriting, poetry, uh, short stories, um, you know, all, all genres of writing. It was such a weird graduate program. But I really, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to get uh, a taste of so many different kinds of writing. So do you think that having an experience like that, uh, where you didn't have to silo yourself in graduate school, has sort of laid the foundation for you to be as broad in your approach to creating theater and to creating the kind of work that you do now? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but... <laughs> That's a good observation. I yeah, probably because I I did get to see the different mechanisms and thinkings behind different kinds of genres of writing, you know? So I wasn't just stuck to like, oh, there's only one way to think about solving this problem. It's like, well, people do this when they write short stories, or people do this when they you know, approach a screenplay. Why can't we do that in theater? Um, yeah, I, I think that's, uh, this will be an illuminative uh, moment for me to to think back on your question. Like, oh yeah, that's, that might be part of the reason why I can't get stuck in one place. <laughs> well, it's obviously served you well. Um, I want to talk a little bit. This was a, a, a wonderful surprise to see this in your background. While you were there, you produced lectures and concerts. And yeah. it's a list of luminaries. Madeleine Al Albright, Herbie Hancock, one of my personal favorites, Spalding Gray, Paula Vogel, Stephen Hawking. My yeah. goodness. <laughs> Do you have any stories that you want to share from that time or that you can share from that time? Uh, yeah, I, I was too young to know how awesome that was. <laughs> um yeah, the, those and those listed there were were really really influential to me. Um, I I did I did also meet quite a few people in the um, orchestral realm. Um, like we did also, Isaac Stern was one of the people that we produced as well, and he and he played bolero, and that was my first time I ever heard bolero, and that was um, like I that was like my first year as a student producer. So so my um, my supervisor produced that show, but we were all working on that show and we produced it together. But I mean, it was it was amazing to have these kinds of opportunities, which is why I, I would always encourage someone if you have an opportunity to go to a university, um, you should do it because it, what it does, it it. it it gives you the opportunity to be opened up to so many different things that you would never be exposed to um, on your own, which is why it's so important to recognize the systemic racism that keeps young people of color out of those kinds of places, right? So if I hadn't literally had like a British mentor tell me, do this, do that, I'm not sure I would have done those kinds of things, right? So, um, but it, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I got to spend a lot of time, uh, relatively speaking, um, with Spalding Gray. I, I remember um, picking, because USC, let's, it's a bougie school. Kim Kardashian went there. <laughs> I, I heard that there was a, a Middle Eastern princess who was also going there at one point. And then, of course, it's part of the uh, scandal with Lori Laughlin trying to get her kids into that school. 
Well, I got in because it was grad school, so I was a serious student. <laughs> um, but but yeah, it was a really. I'd never experienced so much wealth and so much poverty at the same time. Uh, living living in um, Los Angeles, it was just south of downtown, just sort of like north of the South Central area. So it was it was there were so many dichotomies to me, and I think. The first year I lived there, the Academy Awards was still being done um, at uh, a venue that was right next to USC. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but now it's at the Kodak Theater. But I remember seeing all of these limousines and all of these luminaries just going past. And, and then the poverty that was literally on the streets right there. So, so I, I think also it built my character and it also made me think in political ways, um, seeing that strata, especially as a Native American person. But yeah, and, and being able to have this opportunity to, to meet all of these like dignitaries, um, it was, it was amazing being able to talk to, I don't know that Paula Vogel ever remembers uh, meeting me. Uh, she, I, I am on a play commission with her um, through the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, but I've, I've never brought up being um, if she ever remembers me as a student. <laughs> it was quite embarrassing. Um, some of the stupid things you do or say as a student. Um, I'm just thinking like uh, I also had the opportunity, you know, like I was saying with Spalding Gray, we, I would pick him up in the town car. You know, I would be sitting in the back seat and like, well, Mr. Spalding Gray, you know, get in. And I just remember the, having these conversations with him that were really fascinating. And it was so sad um, when when he went missing and presumed to be a suicide. You know, I, you know, I was, was so young just listening to these amazing people. Did meet Stephen Hawking. I had no idea. <laughs> Stephen Hawking was like Stephen Hawking, um, but he he did speak to me. Um, and he was very kind, um, and um, yeah, that was the show I was responsible for. Wow, <laughs> yeah, and Herbie Hancock, he was he's quite quite a cool cool dude. Um, but yeah, you know, you live in Los Angeles for seven years, you're always going to have some like you know like. Oh, I met this celebrity or that celebrity. You have these kinds of stories. <laughs> well, but not not everybody gets to be up close and personal with them and pick them up in a town car when they're a student. That's so right. it had to be right. a, at least a moment where you go, wait, is this my life? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even... I didn't even know, like, what was up and what was down, what was rich and what wasn't. I, I had no idea... That I guess apparently compared to everybody, I'm I grew up very poor, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know you just never know um, till people start to till till these societal stories start to come in and tell you this is your place, this is where you've been, this is what you have access to, this is what you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I I think that it's it's kind of remarkable, but it does lay a foundation for you as a very young person for, okay, this is the society into which I was born, and I'm seeing some things that are not just inequities, they're injustices. So mm -hmm. I want to ask you, you mentioned your fellowship, and um, 
it, it sounds like that was a really impactful part of your life. Would you talk a little bit about? Yeah. So um, in 2006, I, I won a national um, playwriting, uh, emerging playwriting award that gave me an opportunity to come to Minnesota to be a resident playwright at the Playwright Center, which is located in Minneapolis. And um, every year they would give out these things called Jerome Fellowships to emerging playwrights. And a lot of times getting that fellowship helped a playwright launch themselves into a professional career. And that's very much what that did. Um, So I was here in Minneapolis for a year and was just being a playwright, just uh, working on trying to write plays and workshop them. And um, I mean, the thing about Minnesota is it's got a very strong Native American presence. There's 11 federally recognized tribes here who are uh, Anishinaabe and Dakota. And so also Minneapolis was the place where the American Indian movement was founded in 1968. And so a lot of uh, political movements have come out of Minnesota and a lot of legislation that was um, pushed through for Native rights, like basic rights, like not having our religion be illegal anymore. Uh, So those sorts of things were were really uh, prominent uh, because of the American Indian movement. And so when I moved here, I always thought like, oh, it'd be great. It's a perfect place for me as a playwright who identifies as Native American. I am Navajo. That's how I identify. And so I expected there to be like a real strong crossover between theater world, which there's a hundred theaters in the Twin Cities and the Native community because it's such a vibrant one. But yeah, uh, over the year that I, I lived here in the first year it was really apparent that um, there there wasn't there wasn't much of a connection at all. So that ended up becoming my life's work is making that connection. There seems to have been a real intersection of a passion for your people and a passion for theater that came together when you ended up there in Minneapolis. And obviously you've stayed and made something really incredible happen. So let's talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, The name of the theater that you started, New Native Theater, is something that is a huge passion for you. And when when you think, okay, I'm just going to start a theater, (laughs) um, there are a lot of steps involved from the conception of the idea to having something as successful as what you created happen. Talk to me about the early days. Who did you connect with? How did you get that heartbeat going for not just yourself, but so many other people? I think in the early days, so when I first moved to the Twin Cities as a playwright, anytime I had a project or play commission or play production, I was always really pushing um, to try and find ways to involve Native people um, who were living here in the Twin Cities to um, either be actors or um, artists of some sort in the project. And so I I did that consistently for like three years. And then one of my projects I did for my first year here um, for my Jerome Fellowship was I I did a a marathon, like a 12-hour marathon of Native play readings. And so from that, I just tried to 
you know, talent scout and find as many um, actors as possible from the Native community and matched them up with some directors. Um, many were Native, um, some were not. Um, and really sort of what ended up getting born out of those projects was me getting to know the community, the community getting to know me, um, getting to know like what what exactly it was that I was doing because I think still theater seems a little bit of a, a brand new kind of uh, artistic way to express yourself, at least using the form of Western theater. I mean, Native people have been making theater uh, for ever, um, but, you know, conventional American theater, that was something that not many Native people had access to. Because, I mean, if they did, there were a hundred theaters here in town. They, <laughs> If they had access to it, believe me, they would have been doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what was important was um, making um, connections and creating trust in the community. And because I'm Navajo, um, so my traditional homelands are in the Four Corners area, New Mexico, Arizona area. And of course, the native people here are Anishinaabe and Dakota. So that's the majority of the people that you'll find here. Although because the Twin Cities is a vibrant place to live for everybody. And historically, there are reasons why native people were moved into cities. Many government policies have dictated um, Native American lives. Um, so it was important for me to talk to the people who were here people who are already making art of different kinds, different kinds of performances, and literally asking their permission to start a theater company because it wasn't wasn't my home. I didn't think I'd make it my home forever, but I, it was really important to acknowledge um, the people who came before me who were who were making different kinds of theater that maybe conventional American theater makers wouldn't recognize as theater. And that in itself is systemic racism. When you literally see people doing something and you literally can't see it. Um, so that's that's kind of what the early days were like for the company is every day building trust on a one-on-one -on -one level and um, trying to build um, talent and capacity. I have uh, so much respect for the way that you went about that because the typical way of creating a theater is saying, here's my building, come. Yeah. <laughs> when you talked about uh, many of the plays that you write being comedic, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you mentioned to me when we had an opportunity to speak before that um, it's very important in Native storytelling. Can you talk about why that is? Um. Well, I think I think it's a, maybe a similar reason why I think there's so much uh, humor in like uh, Jewish work, right? Um, there's sort of this like gallows humor from surviving really difficult history. Like for New Native Theater, um, I, do, I do think that there is um, when non-Native people come to see our work, I, I think that they assume like, oh, it's going to be a lesson. It's going to be educational 
and and I probably am going to get beat up or told off in some way during this play at some point. And um, I just don't care for that kind of kind of work. Um, and to be honest, most of that kind of work will come from a non-native person writing about native people. To be honest, most actual native work um, doesn't doesn't usually take the time to focus on non-native people. Usually it focuses on our own experiences. And a lot of times those experiences are very funny. Um, there, yeah, many playwrights write about tragic things as native writers, but there's also the sort of absurdity and humor that can come from something being so incredibly tragic. But I also find that like with new native theater, I really like to say, I like to leave my audience better than I found them. So uh, we have a majority native audience and and you know, we market it that way and we try to push it that way. Um, why have such a large native population in the Twin Cities and a native theater company when you don't actually get the native people into there. So it's important for me that we leave our audience in a better place than they came because it is true. Um, native people do still face many inequities. We still face um, the highest uh, rates of incarceration, of highest rates of, um, you know, you name it, suicide, substance abuse, unemployment, um, those kinds of things, which all come down to specific government policies that were created to disenfranchise Native people. Like it was illegal to be Native and practice Native religion and to speak Native languages and sing Native music um, until a year after I was born. So that that is where I think a lot of people in the U.S., if they knew more about Native uh, history and like literally the policies that are created to to deal with Native people. I think the majority of Americans would be really appalled to know that these things exist. So, Like even in Minnesota, like there is still a law on the books that says Dakota people are banned from living here in the state and that if more than four Dakota people are together, they're considered uh, a danger to the state. So those those kinds of laws still exist in their, you know, myriad of forms. That is stunningly backwards. Yeah. It's just, it's just <laughs> stunning that that's yeah. the case and, and, and underlines why your work is so important. Um, can, can we talk a little bit about how theater becomes a part of the healing process when you're able to s tell your stories with your own voice? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is, uh, it's a very important thing to be visible. And right now, if you take a look at the work that's being done in theater or television, film, Native people are virtually invisible. And when we are visible, there are usually uh, usually things that are are really negative. Like it'll bring up negative issues that are happening in native community. Like for instance, like Wind River came out, right? It had some great native characters, but you know there was also um, murder of a native woman in that was the central story, and. Uh, other other plays that might be done in regional theater. There there are 
specifically targeted to educate white people. <laughs> so, so I mean, I think that as a native person, what you're, what I know that I crave is to actually see my own life experience mirrored back in the way that every single other person gets an opportunity to see their experiences mirrored back. And because that's just a, a modern part of how we live in the world these days, you know, before these mechanized ways of storytelling, you know, television, film, even theater, everybody learned how to be human through their family's stories, through stories that were told to them face to face. But we learn that now by stories that are told to us through these different forms of media. And so, I mean, just imagine like this is your land. It's been your land for time immemorial and you are completely erased from it and you don't see any trace of yourself around you. That. Um, that does contribute to um, many many of the issues um, that we're facing. Um, so I do th- I do think that um, there there's an aspect in that way making us visible is healing. Also, when people come to do theater, theater in itself, we all know those of us who do theater that there are many strengths that theater has. Theater raises self-esteem, self-worth, confidence. Those kinds of things um, happen in in my company as well. And uh, because of the innumerable systemic racialized barriers that keep Native people from participating in theater and different kinds of performing arts, um, we don't get that same advantage in the way other other folks like oh yeah I was in I was in plays in high school or blah 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 or I did choir or chorus and in college or whatever those which seem like normal experiences for an average American imagine that those experiences were were literally told to you like you're not allowed to do that you're not supposed to or even when you go walk into those spaces you just get pummeled by by the micro traumas and the macro traumas of like walking into those spaces, like as a native person. Okay. So you, so yeah, I, I have done theater ever since I was a little kid and yeah, so many micro and macro traumas. Like for instance, um, all of the different plays have all of these really he- terrible depictions of native people like tiger lily, right? And then, all kinds of you know contemporary plays too that still come out that that stereotype native people or make a native person a metaphor instead of a person just imagine if the only time you ever saw yourself in film and television you were used as a metaphor and you you weren't like a real person or character you're just a metaphor Right. Yeah, um, there's. I have some familiarity. The, the, <laughs> the magical Negro comes to mind. Oh, sure. Right. 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 Yeah. Or the, yeah, the shaman who then gets to, you know, educate everybody. Um, all of all of those kinds of things that um, are not helpful stereotypes at all. Well, any stereotypes not helpful. <laughs> yeah. Nothing illuminating there. That's that's no. so true. But but it just it it underlines, and I guess I, I keep repeating myself on this, but it underlines the importance of what you're doing and um and it is of great value 
I know it doesn't matter <laughs> in some respects, but it is of great value to the rest of the country that you are doing what you're doing. Doesn't matter because you're doing it for yourself. Yeah. But it won't, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I guess oh, I just yeah, for, put it that for way. For sure. It, it's very important to the rest of the country because, I mean, if anyone living in the U.S. thinks that the oppression of Native American people is actually beneficial to them, no, it's not. The oppression of any people, especially the people whose land it originally was, that's just a blueprint to set up what could happen to you. And we see history repeating itself all the time. And we're already seeing seeing things like that happen to people. So, I mean, there there's no reason, there's no benefit to anybody for the continued oppression and um, suppression of Native people. Uh, I mean, imagine if we had thriving, strong Native communities, right? Then imagine how differently the larger American public could... Um, understand and identify with native people and native culture and and maybe even transcend from cultural appropriation to cultural appreciation and to know that like you're a big you're a part of this um, history and this legacy but you can't really be a part of a history and legacy of a people that you're continuing to um, to oppress amen <laughs> I am with you on that. So, um, and I could talk to you for the rest of the day, but you don't have that kind of time and we probably should not have a four and a half hour podcast. So let me, let me, uh, let me end by asking you to tell us a little bit about your film project. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I, I'm making a film (laughs) for the last three years and it's finally coming to a head. Um, I wrote a screenplay called A Winter Love, and it's basically sort of a story about a Navajo woman who lives in Minnesota um, who is trying to survive <laughs> as, a, as an artist. And so one of the big differences for living in Minnesota from my life growing up in New Mexico is the winter, at least pre-climate change. I can tell you in 2006, the winters were just insane um so anyways it's definite there's definitely been changes but uh, that's a whole other subject i can go into but i'm calling upon the historic idea of the idea of there being really harsh winters in minnesota so um yeah it's a story of a struggling artist during winter she falls in love and the relationship we'll find out does it help her or not and um so this is um something that I um, self-produced. I decided in like 2015 that I really did want to branch out into uh, film and television. So I started looking for different kinds of opportunities and I ended up meeting uh, Musa Saeed, who is a uh, Brooklyn-based filmmaker who came to Minnesota. And he made this really fantastic uh, film inside the Somali community called Astray. And he made this film with like a seven person crew and I was on the crew and I just thought if he can do this and make a film with just this small amount of people, this so reminds me of me making theater, except this is going to last forever. There's just something about film. It's just a completely different media and genre. Right. But I felt like I have so much producing experience. 
I'm just going to do it. So I started just saving money, like little lectures I did here and there or, or teaching gigs or, um, you know, prizes or, or grants or playwriting things. And I started to just sort of like tuck it away. And then I decided in 2017, um, when I had enough to hire a crew for a certain amount of days that I decided to go for it. I was, I was really fortunate to meet uh, this fantastic Welsh crew at South by Southwest when Musa Said's uh, film debuted at South by Southwest. And so I met the director of photography and he ended up working on my film. And he just so happened to constantly, his last few films were working with uh, first time female writer, director, actors, which was exactly what my film was. So, so it was a really fantastic partnership. His name is uh, Ryan Edelson. And so he's, yeah, he's a British, a Welsh um, <laughs> filmmaker, um, um, cinematographer. And from there, things just sort of synchronistically came together and filmed, made the film over two years. And then little pickup shots here and there to make sure things are coming together. And so now we are almost finished with the film um so so it's called a winter love which yes. is a wonderful name when do we anticipate uh getting it in front of audiences do you know yet um yeah so i'm ho- i'm hoping um next year it will be hitting uh the film festival circuit excellent well, we will absolutely look for it um just want to ask you one final question before we wrap up and it's the question that we like to ask all of our influential women we want to know who inspires you what woman in theater do you admire most and why oh um <laughs> gosh um well um i think the the thing that was most influential to me as a native writer and artist and a young person were uh, a couple of Native women that I met along my journey. I had met this um, playwright named Diane Benson, who's a Clinkett playwright who lives in Alaska. I went up to Valdez, Alaska for this um, playwriting festival that was there, and I had met her. And she was just really the most... um, this just the strongest one, like really one of the strongest women I'd ever met. There was an evening of 10 minute plays that sort of impromptu came up. And there was some professor at the local college who wrote this 10 minute play that literally had these terrible Indian stereotypes, like, like saying, like, just think of your worst Indian stereotype. And that's what these characters were saying in this play. And she stood up in the audience and she said, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. And I was like, you can do that? You can say no when someone is hurting you? What a concept. You can do that. Yeah. And that stuck with me the rest of my life because I just remember all of the people in the audience laughing until she said that, I can still remember these smiles just turn into horror. Like, and also at the same time, them realizing that that was not okay for them to laugh at that. They turned, they looked, and it was like, oh my God, we're in Alaska. Look at all these Alaska native people here. Yeah. Look at the 
Look at the designs and the art on, on the walls. Look at this entire world. And here we are, non-Native people who've come to Alaska to this playwriting conference, and we're laughing at these Indian stereotypes. What kind of assholes are we? <laughs> <laughs> so it, that's that, that she, she still stands out for me as one of the most important uh, women in theater. Um, for me personally, she set me on a trajectory of saying no when something wasn't okay. Uh, and then, and then another person who was a mentor of mine, uh, her name is Marie Clements. She's a fantastic, and if you don't know this, uh, First Nations playwright, oh my God, you should. She is one of the most respected, well-known playwrights in Canada. And she just received a Lifetime Achievement Award um, at the National Arts Center in Ottawa last September. And um, they produced her play, a three-hour-long play by a Native woman that was non-linear, right? And it was directed by um, Muriel Miguel, who is another Native woman who's from the U.S. She was part of the Spider Woman Theater troupe. Um, but as American theater makers... You have no clue how incredibly important these women are to an entirely different country's um, entire theater and art landscape makeup. And it is a shame as Americans that we don't know these people and we don't recognize them and we're losing out as a result of it. So, um, so yeah, so those, those are the, those are the women that I, um, I look up to and uh, have have been incredibly influential for me as an artist, the way that I am in the world and what what I write. Well, I am grateful to them for what you've brought to the world of theater. And we are also grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, Rihanna. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks so much to Rihanna Yazzie for speaking with me today. Tune in next time to hear from playwright Deborah Zoe Laufer. I know a lot of writers who are saying, why write right now? And I don't know what I think if I don't write about it anymore. I don't know my place in the world or I can't understand what's happening around me unless I start writing about it. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. We're a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated to solely producing works by women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our producers are Eric Berg and Jenna Burnett. Our audio engineer is Jonathan Villalobos. Our music is by Len Barnett with Brent Nance. Our executive producer is Kateri Kale, managing artistic director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission at echotheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, dark. Thank you, dark. And I've just been drinking this kombucha just in case anyone was wondering. <laughs> I'm a little bougie. <laughs>